0: And uh, we have some important things we want to learn from it in this series. So take your Bibles, open them to Judges 6, and you'll want to keep them open all morning long because we're going to keep going back to that passage. Now, just to get us ready to read this passage, uh, I don't don't really like to be Debbie Downer, but uh, it seems like today in the year 2017, the early years, still the early years of the 21st century, there are a lot of things, there are a lot of things that are in a downward spiral. A downward spiral. I don't just mean the Seahawks either. I mean things that are even more important than the Seahawks, if you can imagine such a thing. Uh, Downward spiral, or if not a downward spiral, at least an upward challenge. You look at the subject of, like, in our valley, just in our valley, you look at education and you realize, wow, if. That is an upward. That is an upward challenge. Educating the children of this valley, uh, many of them who come to school without any preparation for the things that they, they they need to be learning, not with with really no foundation, and teachers who are tasked with uh, moving kids uh, through this process of education without without uh, having kids who have really been prepared for this. And then the uh, the rougher uh, it gets even rougher for students who come from low income households, and it's just a challenge. It's not a knock on our teachers. It's just a description of the reality in our valley, and not just in our valley, but beyond. Just the challenge of educating children, future citizens of our country. Uh, it's, it's a challenge, an upward challenge. Uh, that's the subject of education. Take the subject of morality, uh, changing moral standards. There's, there's been a drastic change of moral standards in our, our uh, just in the last ten years, just a drastic change. It was, especially in the area of sexuality. I was listening yesterday to a, a story on NPR. Not a story on NPR, but a show, and uh, they were interviewing someone who's created a cartoon for kids. You can download it on Amazon Video, uh, and it's uh, it's a cartoon for kids. It's called uh, Danger and Egg and it sounds fun and interesting, and it's, it's fun for kids and for parents, and I'm listening to it thinking, "Oh, that sounds like fun, probably should give that a go. And then they uh, say that one of, the, one of the most important features of this particular show, now it's a cartoon, and its target audience is children 6 to 11. And uh, one of the things they're trying to accomplish in this show is to, by their own admission, to, to normalize gay and trans sexual behavior. Uh, it's billed as the queer cartoon that we've been waiting for. And uh, it's just hard to imagine. Targeted for children ages 6 to 11. You download it on Amazon Video. And uh, it's promoting an entirely different lifestyle than anyone who's observed basic Judeo-Christian ethic uh, for, for centuries. would. It'd be hard for anyone who's followed that kind of ethic Uh, and that kind of those kind of moral standards to see this anything other than a downward spiral a downward spiral how about if you you know education uh, morality how about politics if that's that's not even in a downward spiral it's like in a free fall political discourse and functionality in america the problem of racism and the the level of discourse our country is Operating at uh, the divisiveness in uh, so many different areas of our, it's just it's a free fall. And then you consider the subject that should matter even more to us: the subject that matters even more to us uh, as Jesus followers, which is the health and mission of the church—the mission that Jesus gave us to make disciples, to help people come to know who he is, and, and uh, have their relationship with God repaired by turning to him as the leader of their life and forgiver of their sins, and then helping people grow up in that. Uh, that is not in a downward spiral, but it's an upward challenge, and it's even more important than these other subjects. These other subjects are important, but they're common grace, and they last for this life. But, but the mission of making disciples is saving grace, and, and its implications are eternal, and not a downward spiral, but for sure an upward challenge. And the church is always only one generation away from extinction. And so you look at the challenge in the United States, where, where today the United States is characterized, uh, probably the one statistic that, that is the biggest takeaway for me is that there are more people who follow the, religion, uh, the religious label of unaffiliated than any other faith label. Uh, in our country, unaffiliated, uh, is the greatest religious affiliation in the United States. And so we look around, and we see these things in a downward spiral. And when I describe this to you, I want to ask you, when I describe these things, um, the state of, the challenge of education, the the spiral of, of uh, morality, the Problems in politics, the challenge of the church, what does it stir up in you? What's your immediate reaction? Is it, uh, is it, does it make you say, oh no? Or does it make you say, well, let's go? Is it, oh no, this is awful and, and it's terrible? Or does it make you say, well, let's go and do something about it? There's a big difference between these two responses, oh no and let's go. And these two responses produce two entirely different kinds of results. Uh, these two, the difference between oh no and let's go determines who leads and who doesn't lead. And the difference between oh no and let's go determines what gets done and what doesn't get done. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And if you have a, a, a vision to lead, if you have uh, a, an area, if you have a, a you'd like to grow in an area of stewardship in the work that God's doing in the world. Or if you see some downward spirals or upward challenges that you'd like to do something about, then this morning's studies for you. So we have our Bibles open to Joshua, I'm sorry, to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. And uh, we're going to be reading most of this chapter here in just a minute. And just a reminder that... that, uh, Judges is, uh, our our study, Who Me, is based in this section of the book of Judges. It's the focal point of the whole book, these next several chapters beginning in in chapter 6. And Judges, if you remember from last week, Judges is a book that records downward spirals. It's a series of downward spirals. We looked at this diagram last week and it kind of starts at the top and works its way clockwise. You start at the top with peace. God is uh, called the nation of Israel and said, "If you'll, I'll be your God if you'll be my people. And they said, yeah, let's do it. And so God gives them peace and gives them land. But he says, "Listen, when you disobey, then this is what's going to happen. And, and this is what exactly exactly what does happen where you have this spiral, this cycle, begins in disobedience. God's people, turn; they're experiencing a time of peace, but they give in to the cultural pressure around them. They begin to worship idols and disobedience. Following disobedience, God brings discipline. He uh, brings uh, other nations to oppress them and discipline them. And then finally, His people turn around and there's repentance. And then once they repent, God brings deliverance. And so we looked at that cycle uh, last week, this cycle of downward spirals, and we also learned that uh, God brings people to change these circumstances. That that when God brings deliverance, He uses people to do that. That's why the book of Judges is called Judges, because it's about the the men and women that God raised up to change circumstances. God uses people to change circumstances. Judges is the account of some of the people that God used. To bring about the deliverance that he promised when his people turned back to him. And today, God's going to invite a man named Gideon to change some circumstances. And we're going to read this account and we're going to see if Gideon's response is, uh-oh, or let's go. We're going to begin reading in verse uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Again, first word, again. Well, uh, you notice, let's, let's actually start the last line before that. In chapter seven, or chapter five, I'm sorry, the very last line of verse 31 says, Then the land had peace for 40 years. So we're starting at the top of that diagram, right? Peace. Again, we're moving clockwise, unfortunately. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, disobedience. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites, discipline. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts and caves and strongholds. Can you imagine God's people living like that? And whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. And they camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing uh, for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts it was impossible to count the men and ca- their camels. And they invaded the land to ravage it. So Midian, Im- Midian, so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to Yahweh for help. Repentance. And when they repent, God responds. And God responds by activating two people. First, he activates a prophet. Verse 7, when the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent to them a prophet. And this prophet basically uh, rehearses the things that God has already done for his people and how he rescued them from Egypt. And then then the second person God activates is uh, this man named Gideon. And we read about that in verse 11. The angel of Yahweh came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. And when the angel of Yahweh came to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But uh, But Sir Gideon replied, If Yahweh is with us, why has all this happened to us? where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did, did not Yahweh bring us up out of Egypt? But now Yahweh has abandoned us and put us in the hands of Midian. And the Lord turned to him. Notice that even though this is an angel of the Lord, several times we it looks like there's no mediator and it's Gideon and God talking to each other, and the angels out of the picture. And some people would say this is a theophany or a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. And we have some of those in the Old Testament. It's possible, but I don't think it's necessarily required, because really, when you're talking with God's messenger, you're talking with God. And, And so I don't know that it's required that this be a theophany, but just that we view this conversation as pretty unmediated between God and Gideon. And Yahweh turns to him, verse 14, and says, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. And Yahweh answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down the Midianites together, all the Midianites together. And Gideon replied, uh, if I've found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. He's like, I've got I to take care of some stuff. I'll be back. And he goes and he fixes this, this uh, offering. It's basically an offering to a God. It's uh, a huge portion. He goes and prepares a young goat. Two guys, one goat. All right? And from an an ephah of flour, he made bread without yeast. And and ephah is about 40 pounds of flour, right? I mean, he's he's cooking a big meal here. It's an offering more than it is a meal. And putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread and place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. And with the tip of his staff, that was in his hand, the angel of Yahweh touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Ah, sovereign Lord, I've seen the angel of Yahweh face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid. You're not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to Yahweh, to the Lord there, and called it the Lord is Peace, Yahweh Shalom. And to this day, it still stands in Ophrah of the Abizurites. So this is the basic framework of this story. Of how God calls a man named Gideon to change the circumstances around him and as we i want us to kind of start getting our head around this story as we hone in on some of the most significant parts first we've seen that this angel of the lord is is a messenger who comes and and may or may not be the preincarnate christ doesn't have to be we're not it's not clear but definitely this this almost direct encounter between gideon and god and the angel is bringing this message to this man named gideon Although when we meet him, he's not acting very much like a man. He, we find him at this moment of vulnerability. He's threshing wheat. Now, now, when you meet a character in a, in a movie or a book, or and often in, in, in the narratives in Scripture, what you find that character doing the very first time you meet him is usually meant to tell you something significant about their character, about who they are as a person. And so we meet Gideon. And he's in this moment of vulnerability and fear because he's threshing wheat, which is a very manly thing to do. But he's not doing it in a very manly way. He's threshing wheat in a in a wine press. Now, usually in that day, you would thresh wheat on a on a big hill. And what they'd do is they'd take the wheat, they'd cut the wheat, they throw it in a big pile, and then they'd take something called a threshing. Sl- well, they might beat it with sticks. Or they'd take something called a threshing sledge, which is kind of like a big door, a big plank of wood, and on the bottom it has either stones sticking out of it or some kind of spikes, and they'd drag it back and forth across these stalks of wheat. Or they'd get an animal to pull it back and forth across these stalks of wheat, and that kind of separates the wheat and, and the straw. But then the next thing they would do is they would take a pitchfork or a shovel, and they would, they're on the top of a hill, they'd throw it up in the air. And uh, the, the wind that's blowing would blow the little pieces of chaff away, and the grain would fall in a pile. And so you would do that on a big hill where there's a nice, strong breeze going, and that's how it worked. Uh, but if Gideon goes to the top of a hill in, in this day and age that he lives in, he might as well be waving a big sign you know, that says, Hey, Midianites, come up here and take my wheat from me. So instead he 's doing it down in a valley in a wine press now, wine and wheat, okay those are two things we know a little bit about, so we can kind of imagine, but just like they made, just like the process of harvesting wheat was different then uh, the, pro- the process of making wine uh, they, they made wine differently than than they do today in the Walla Walla Valley. A wine press uh, in that day would would consist of a, a stone basin and sometimes two, but a stone basin uh, in, in the ground and uh, then another stone basin somehow connected to it. In this picture, you have a one in the center down down in the center, and and the the floor is sloped down. Uh, sometimes they have two adjoining holes, one higher than the other, and a and a trough that connects them. But in this case, you have this, this big basin and a smaller basin. You put the grapes on that on the bigger uh bigger basin and then you stomp the grapes and the juice runs downhill into the smaller basin and then you collect it and store it. And uh that's that's how they would make wine in those days. And so uh Gideon is making he's threshing his wheat in a in a wine press. Now, have you ever noticed, if you take the fancy wine part away, if you take the fancy wine part away from this wine press, it's really just a hole in the ground. And I don't know if you've noticed uh, how wine fancies everything up. You know, just the presence of wine. We see it all the time in Walla Walla, right? You just add wine, and all of a sudden, it's fancy, you know. Uh, But but we know better, because we're like, you, you, you take away the wine, you take away the wine, it's just a barn, people. It's just a barn where animals used to live. But now you add wine, it's fancy. Heard some guys talking the other day. One guy's retired, kind of trying a new... A new gig, and he was talking to his friend. This is something I overheard uh, the other day. And uh, he was talking about how, yeah, what he does now, what he's doing now that he's retired, is he, uh, he drives a car from winery to winery and drives people from one winery to the other throughout the valley. And this other guy, old codger, kind of says, oh, so you're like the Uber of the wine industry in the valley. He says, yeah, I guess I am. And I'm thinking, no, you take away the wine and you're just a taxi driver, right? You're just a cab driver, that's all, if you take away the wine part. And so wine kind of fancies everything up. This is, you know, yeah, it's a wine press, but if you take away the wine, it's a hole in the ground. And that's where Gideon is threshing his wheat. He's threshing his wheat in a hole in the ground. And all of a sudden... And and this is an insight into Gideon. It's an insight into where he's at. It's an insight into his character and his frame of mind. And all of a sudden, the angel, this angel, appears. Now, the, the Hebrew and kind of the flow of the text indicates, if you read, first of all, in verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak. So, it's a few minutes later before the angel actually appears, So it looks like the angel has sat down under the oak before he he has made himself visible. And all of a sudden, he makes himself visible. And he says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And Gideon, in this winepress, he jumps out of his skin. Uh, He jumps out of his skin. And and immediately, right here, the beginning of this story, we're faced with this tension. We're faced with this tension because we've just encountered two very incongruous facts about Gideon. We only know two things about him. Well, kind of three. One is that his name is Gideon, which means hacker or, or shredder. And we're going to learn about Gideon the, the shredder uh, next week. But So you kind of know that about his name. But, but other than his name, we only know two things about him. One is he's hiding in a hole. And the other is that God just called him mighty warrior. And those are the only two things we know about this character as we are introduced to him. And those two things are miles apart—hiding in a hole, and mighty warrior. You talk about tension. We're supposed to—we're supposed to feel this tension as we read this passage. There are some things about God and Gideon that are going to have to be worked out if the guy who hides in holes is going to become the mighty warrior. And it doesn't get any better, Gideon doesn't help his case with his response in verse 13. He says, but sir, if Yahweh is with us, why does all this happen to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about? When they said, didn't Yahweh bring us up out of Egypt? But now Yahweh's abandoned us and put us in the hand of Midian. Gideon, he sees all the problems here and he places the blame, who does he place the blame on? God. Now, who would the book of Judges place the blame on for this situation? Israel. They're the ones who disobeyed, and they knew what God would do if they disobeyed, if they turned away from him. But, but uh, So actually, God is just keeping his promises today. He's just showing his faithfulness to his people by disciplining them. Uh, but Gideon does what we do today. You hear people a lot, a lot of the time, blame God for the state of the world, you know, and they say, if God was, if God really cared about people and was really powerful, if God even existed, he wouldn't let things be the way they are today. You know, a lot of the reason the way things are today is because of our own choices. The, way, the reason things are the way they are in the world, the reason things are the way they are in our lives, Often is because of the very choices that we've made, which many times God has already told us what would happen. And so that's kind of Gideon. It gives us a clue into his personality. He's a, he's a pessimist. His response is, uh-oh. He's a blame shifter. He doesn't want to take any responsibility for the way things are. All the things that a mighty warrior would be, Gideon is not. At least not today. Not yet. And at the heart of it, he's got these three big obstacles that that prevent him from being the person that God envisions him to be. God wants to to call Gideon to change some circumstances. But all Gideon can see right now are the obstacles to that. The first obstacle is his own identity. Uh, God sees him as a mighty warrior. But Gideon doesn't see himself that way. He sees himself as a a weakling. God says to him in verse 14, basically, you're going to save Israel from Midian. But Gideon can't believe it. Look at his answer in verse 15. But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. I am a weakling from a family of weaklings. That's his image of himself. So the first thing that's coming between... I'm not a leader... I can't do that kind of thing. It's not who I am. The first obstacle to Gideon responding to the opportunity to go with God and change some circumstances is his own self perception. The second obstacle is his ability to believe God's vision for the future. He is is not at all confident that God is going to be able to pull this off. I mean, God has a vision for the future, and he shares it in verse 14. He says, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. And then in verse 16, he says, you will strike down all the Midianites together. Another translation says, uh, like they're one guy. You're going to knock them all down like it was just one guy. Gideon's not buying it. God has a vision for what he wants to accomplish, and gideon says i don 't think that could ever really happen. His first obstacle is his own sense of his, who he is i can 't do that kind of thing. His second obstacle is he doesn 't believe god 's vision for what God wants to do, and the third obstacle is his own confidence in his call god 's call on him to be that guy that 's the last part of the passage and God, Gideon is like, wait here, I'm going to go cook up some food because I'm not even, verse 17, give me a sign. I need a sign that it is really you talking to me. He's not even sure that this is God calling him to do something. I'm not, I'm not sure I heard you right. I'm not sure you really meant it. I'm not sure this is actually you talking to me, God. Uh, and the stakes are too high, and so I want to make double sure. So he goes and he makes this giant meal, and he offers it, and, and God consumes it in fire. But it's all part of his own hesitation about whether, he's, wh- whether this is really God even talking to him. So you've got these three obstacles, his identity, his, his uh, uh, belief that God is actually going to do what God says he's going to do, God's vision for the future. And, and his own certainty of his call in that process. And until Gideon can make peace with these three obstacles, and you see that we're getting to some timelessness here, right? Some things that apply to you and me. Until Gideon can make peace with these three obstacles, he's never going to be a mighty warrior. He will never lead anything. He will never lead anything. Imagine a leader who hasn't settled these issues. A leader who hasn't settled the issue of who he or she is, their identity and and hasn't settled the issue of their confidence in God's vision for the future, who hasn't even settled in their own minds God's call on their life or the assignments that God has given them. They're not gonna they're not in a position to lead. Hi, I'm a loser. I don't know why I'm here, and I'm pretty sure we're doomed. Who wants to come with me? That's not going anywhere. That leader is not leading anyone, and that downward spiral is not going to stop. But there's something God continues to stress in their encounter that makes all the difference. There's something that God reminds Gideon over and over that finally closes the gap between the mighty warrior and the guy who hides in holes. It's enough to overcome Gideon's identity problems. I'm a weakling. It's enough to overcome his doubt about God's vision for the future. It's enough to overcome his doubt that God is really calling him to do something about it. And it is this, God repeatedly assures Gideon throughout this encounter that he will succeed because God is with him. That's the key that turns a loser into a leader, turns a pessimist into an optimist. And it happens three times in this encounter. We see it, first of all, in verse 12, where the very first words out of the angel's mouth, Yahweh is with you, the Lord is with you. Is with you. The very first thing we read, we see it also in verse 14. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? God is sending Gideon, God is with him. And then uh, verse 16 Yahweh answered, I will be with you. And you will strike down all the many knights together. Three times. And actually you see it again when, when he goes and offers up this meal. It's just another reminder that this is God. And as he consumes that meal with a fire, woof, it's gone. Gideon is reminded, yep, this really is God. He really is here talking to me. And he really is with. So it's this idea that God is with him. God, God responds when he puts the, the, that food in front of him. God responds in a way that confirms the promise of his presence. And over time, it's this promise that makes a difference. It's the promise of God's help and presence that turns a whole hider into a mighty warrior. If God is with Gideon, it doesn't matter if he's uh, the biggest weakling in a family of weaklings. Not an issue. It doesn't matter if he... Uh, if if, uh, the odds are against Gideon in what God calls him to do. Because the odds are going to get a whole lot worse before this story is over in a couple weeks. So it doesn't matter that the odds are against him. It doesn't matter that he's a weakling. It doesn't matter that that the circumstances around him don't seem to indicate that it's ever going to get any better. He will succeed. He will succeed in what God has called him to do. See, because God has a vision. God wants to free his people. He wants to use Gideon to do this. This is something God wants to do. He wants these things to happen. It's his intent, God's intent for these things. And they can happen. It's possible. But unless Gideon can share in that vision, uh, and unless Gideon can believe that God is with him in pursuing this vision, it's not going to happen. But if Gideon can believe that God's vision is always accompanied by his presence, then Gideon will will rise to the call. And that's where we, we're, we're getting close to the timeless truth of this passage. And I would put it like this. God's vision is always accompanied by his presence. This whole passage is about two competing visions, God's and Gideon's. Gideon has one vision of himself. And he has one vision of what the future's going to look like. But God has another vision of who Gideon is and what the future is is going to look like. And you have these two competing visions. And the only thing that's going to bridge the gap between these two competing visions is the promise of God's presence. And you and I, I mean, this is is true not just in this call of Gideon. You see this when God calls other leaders in in the Bible, and we encounter it today. It's the very same thing that you and I encounter. Uh, We have the same kinds of obstacles that Gideon had. We doubt our identity. We doubt that we're that kind of person. I'm not that kind of guy. I'm not that kind of gal. It's not me. I could never do that. Okay, so we doubt our own identity. Uh, we doubt God's vision for the future. That's not going to happen. I can't believe that this will ever change. Uh, we doubt whether it's really God. Is this really God? I don't know. You know, it's hard for me to tell. And, and uh, we wrestle with the same kinds of things. We under and and it keeps us, it's, it's all in the uh oh response. It's all uh oh stuff. We need to remember that God's vision is always accompanied by his presence, and God has a vision for you. He has a vision for who he wants you to be and what he wants you to do. And his vision for who he wants you to be and what he wants you to do, it's always accompanied by his presence, by his enabling. Let's talk about those for a minute. First of all, God has a vision for who he wants you to be. He has a vision for that. The the man or the woman, the husband or the wife that he wants you to be, the single person. God has a vision for who he wants you to be. God has a vision for you to be a person of purity. God has a vision for you to be a person of self-control. God has a vision for you to be a person of forgiveness and grace, God has a vision for you to be a loving husband, a faithful wife. God has a vision for the kind of person that he wants you to be, a godly leader in your family. And that vision is always, as you think about what God wants you to be, and you think, oh, I don't know, that is not me. You know what? God's vision for you is accompanied by his presence. And that's enough to close that gap. You may feel the gap, but God wants to fill the gap between who you are and who God wants you to be. So imagine that you're driving home today, and unbeknownst to you, in sitting shotgun, riding shotgun there, is an angel who all of a sudden decides to make himself known to you, and uh, The angel says, the Lord is with you. And you get to fill in the blank with, for Gideon, mighty war. But you get to fill in the blank. And you get to fill in the blank with what God's vision is for you. What would that be? What would that angel say? The Lord is with you, godly leader of your family. The Lord is with you, wholehearted follower The Lord is with you, precious son or daughter of Yahweh's. Maybe it's the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The Lord is with you, godly leader. The the Lord is with you, culture changer. The Lord is with you, Jesus sharer. God's vision for what he wants you to be. He has a vision. And it's always accompanied by his presence. That means that you can respond to that vision. You can act on it and know that it will happen. God also has a vision for what he calls you to do. Not just what he wants you to be, but what he calls you to do. And God has called you to something, to do something, to do something about it. Uh, And if God gives you an assignment, he gives you what you need to carry that out. If God has called you to work on your marriage, God's going to give you what you need to do that. If God's calling on you to be a patient, gracious parent, God's going to give you what you need to do that. If God calls you to take on a ministry of making disciples, or if God calls you to reach out to a person, or share Jesus with someone, or change a downward spiral, He will be with you as you do that. If you see something around the world and it bothers you and you know it bothers God too, then that's probably God showing you that he'll go with you if you work on it. God's vision is always accompanied by his presence. And this for sure should remind us as Jesus' followers of the time when Jesus promised that he would be with us. Do you remember when he said that? He said, go in all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. This challenge of of sharing Jesus with the world and then raising up mature Jesus' followers. And then after he gives us that challenge, what's the next thing He says, I will be with you always. So we know that in the mission of the church and the process of making disciples and helping people grow as wholehearted followers of Jesus, we know we're operating with, with God's presence with us. God's vision is always accompanied by his presence. And this, this is where leaders emerge. This is where the people that God uses to change circumstances emerge. If, if at the beginning of the, the morning I said, if, if there is a downward spiral you'd like to fix, or if there is uh, uh, an area of stewardship that you'd like to have in God's work in the world, and you're like, yeah, well, I'll tell you what, this is where leaders emerge. This is where the people God uses to change circumstances emerge. It's the people who believe God and his presence and is enabling enough to act on it. These are the people God uses to change downward spirals and take on upward challenges. See, because pessimists aren't leaders. You might say, well, I'm just kind of a pessimist. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, you've got to deal with that. Because pessimists aren't leaders. Pessimists can't lead because pessimists have nowhere to take people. Pessimists uh, don't believe in a better future. And nobody follows someone to a worse future. So if you want to lead people to a better future, you've got to believe that that better future is out there. Anyone who doubts God's vision for the future cannot build it. You can't be a pessimist and lead people. God is in the business of changing downward spirals, but only those who believe God can do it and will do it will join him in doing it. If you doubt God's vision for you, your identity, and who he wants you to be, I don't think God will ever do that with me. Well, you just defined reality. If you don't think God will ever change the circumstances around you, this is something you just, this train has left the station. No one will ever stop it then you will never be used to stop it. If you doubt God's vision of the future, then you will never join him in changing it. But if you believe God's presence always accompanies his vision, then you have what you need to take the action that God calls you to take. And here's what I'd like for this message to do. Now that we've talked about this, this is what I'd like for this message to do for you. I would like for it to challenge you to be a Gideon. Because the world needs Gideons. The world needs people who will, uh, who will engage in the downward spirals and the upward challenges that surround us. The world needs someone who will be what God has called them to be and do what God has called them to do. This valley needs people who will be who God has called them to be and then do what God has called us to do. And that, that someone is you. It's you and you and you and you and me. Because we're the ones God wants to call to participate in changing circumstances. We've turned to Jesus to forgave our sins and the leader of our life. He has given us a new identity. We are now saints. We are holy ones. We are holy ones who are gifted to do God's work in the world. Every Jesus follower has been given gifting to do God's work in the world. And we have been created to do these good works. That means there are downward spirals all around us, upward challenges all around us that depend on you and me to change our trajectory. If you don't believe that, you'll never accomplish the things God wants you to do. If you don't believe that for your marriage, if you don't believe that for your kids... If you don't believe that for your own future, then it'll never happen. But if you know it's one of God's values, then you can work on it, knowing that God is with you in that. There are eternal things that God wants to do through you, but you won't get there by saying, "Uh uh-oh. We get there by responding, let's go. scary, but let's do it, because God is with me. So I want to encourage you to accept the call and see the better future that God wants to create through you, in your family, where you work, in your neighborhood, in some part of this valley, maybe some other part of the world where you have a heart for changing a downward spiral, you're just not sure that God would call you. If it's on your heart and it's on God's heart, then for sure you've got some kind of role to play. So what's the downward spiral or the upward challenge that you want to take on? My prayer is that God will show each of us as individuals in the places where he's put us what he wants us to take on and that as a church he will continue to show us what he wants to take on. So that's how I'd like to pray for you right now. I'd like to pray. I want to give you just a moment to think about it and and interact with God over this for just a minute. And The question I'd like to ask and then what I'll pray for you is what's the downward spiral that you want to take on What's the downward spiral, the upward challenge that you think God has for you right now and you you just need the courage to act on his presence? Take that idea for a minute. Pray about it. I'd like to close in prayer in just a second. Father, it encourages us to know that you are a God who is at work in history. You're at work in the world. You're doing things around the world. You are a God who's engaged in history. And you want to use your people, the body of Christ, your church to do this. And that body is made up of individual members who are gifted and called to make disciples and make a difference my prayer is that you would give each of us clarity about something we can do. Something we can do to partner with you and join you in the work that you're doing in the world. That we wouldn't let any hesitation about who we are. We wouldn't let any doubt about the future. We wouldn't let any doubt about your call on us and our responsibility to keep us from doing that but that like Gideon even though it may not always be our nature we'd respond with faith and obedience and that as we do that Father that you would change downward spirals around us that over time in this valley and even in other parts of the world there'd be common grace that would open the way for saving grace as we make disciples, we know that that's the one thing we can do that Je- we can know Jesus is with us. Please help us as we pursue these things. Amen Amen well, as we wrap.